Have you ever noticed how much the Bible repeats itself? You know, it says the same thing over and over. You know, it states and then restates, reiterating the same point. It says it once, and then it says it again and again and again and again. The book of Deuteronomy is full of repetition. In fact, the book title literally means the second law or the law a second time, the repetition of the law. The books of Kings and Chronicles give accounts of the same king. The book of Proverbs sometimes sounds like a broken record. What we read from Leviticus 11 itself repeated again and again. And the prophets repeat themselves and each other. The gospels give accounts of the same events of Jesus. Well, there are at least three reasons for such repetition. One, repetition is for the purpose of remembering so that it sinks in and makes a true and lasting change. Second, repetition for the point of emphasis, the most important things get repeated. And third, repetition for the presentation of themes so that various topics and ideas are highlighted, different ones perhaps in the different accounts. Paul's conversion story will get repeated with different highlighted themes emphasized as we track through the book of Acts. Our passage this morning has built in repetition and then Peter's recounting is repeated to show its importance and drive home the main point so that we might see the main point and those things that relate to it. Before we read the word, let's go before the author in prayer. Our Lord, you are the Lord of revelation. You speak so that we might hear, and in hearing we might understand, and in understanding it might get translated into our lives, what we say and what we do. To that end, we pray for your Holy Spirit to come and to do what your Spirit does, to give us perception of spiritual things as the Spirit bears witness to the reading and the preaching of your word. And so also we pray for the preacher, knowing that he is not worthy, but by your grace he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. This morning we're going to look at the last section of chapter 9 and then all of chapter 10. And in total there's four sections, and we're going to read those in four parts and break it down along the way. So listen first to the end of chapter 9, beginning at verse 32. This is the word of God. As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the saints in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up, take care of your mat. Immediately, Aeneas got up, and all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which when translated is Dorcas, who was always doing good and helping the poor. About the time she became sick and died and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room, and then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, 
Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to see, uh, helped her to her feet. And then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. We had just read about Paul's conversion back earlier in chapter 9, and we would expect that the account of Paul would continue. But Luke, who writes this account of the book of Acts, takes us back to Peter. Peter is the lead character for the first 12 chapters of Acts for the most part, but the last four chapters have followed others, Stephen and Philip and then Saul Paul. So Luke reestablishes Peter and his ministry, which is happening concurrently with Paul and with Philip and the other disciples and the deacons. Why does Luke reestablish Peter here? Because we are to remember that Peter and Paul are not teaching two different things, but they are one in doctrine and work. I point this out because liberal theology in the last century attempted to raise a divide between what they call Peter's Jewish theology and Paul's Gentile theology. For those of you who are interested in the names and history of such things, this comes from the Germans Hegel, Bauer, uh, Schwegler, and the Tumingen School. For the rest of us who don't need the names, it was from this artificially formed divide between Peter and Paul that gave rise to questioning the authorship of most of Paul's letters, Peter's letters, and ultimately the misinterpretation of those letters and of the gospel itself. What Luke does at the end of Acts 9 and then all of Acts 10, 11, and 12 is to show that Peter is ministering to Gentiles, receiving a vision that the gospel of Christ is for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And so Luke is going to great lengths to show that Peter and Paul are on the same team. They will have a disagreement later, but even that gets resolved when Peter acknowledges his error and confesses it. And so we see that they really are on the same team. The devil loves to sow disagreement among Christians, to create it in all kinds of ways. But God continually unites and reunites Christians. In our text, we read about Peter going to communities of the early church that existed outside of Jerusalem. Jesus had told the apostles to be witnesses not only in Jerusalem, but also to Judea in the south, Samaria in the north, and to all the world. And Peter is doing exactly that. He is checking in with communities that are already forming as the gospel is spreading. And he's encouraging believers who are concerned about the other communities around. And so notice that Peter isn't visiting just one person, but he's going to places and visiting groups of people. Again, verse 32, as Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the saints, plural, in Lydda. And there he heals a man by the name of Aeneas. And then we read about Tabitha, also known as Dorcas in Joppa. And in verse 38, Lydda near Joppa, so when the disciples, plural, heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. In both cases, the miraculous healings and raising Tabitha from the dead become widely known. And in the same pattern as the opening chapters in the book of Acts, they become opportunities for people to hear the gospel and place their faith in Jesus Christ. 
That takes us then to chapter 10, chapter 10, which opens with two divine visions. The first to a Gentile man named Cornelius. Listen again to God's word. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. To say that Cornelius was a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment meant he had some serious pull. (laughs) He's a commander of a hundred specialty troops one of 30 commanders at the time, and in the leading city of Rome. And so he has prestige, he has authority in a major place at a key time. And to say that Cornelius was devout and God-fearing meant that he was a Gentile, a non-Jew, a Gentile, who worshiped on the Sabbath in the local synagogue and studied the Hebrew scriptures. He kept the Jewish dietary laws, gave material gifts to alleviate the needs of the poor, and prayed daily at set times. And yet, he was never circumcised. And so to the Jewish community, he was on the right track, but was still not Jewish. He was welcome to be in the synagogue, but to stand in the back with the other Gentiles. The Jews did not necessarily detest him, but also would not interact with him socially. All of this is also to say that both devout Jews and devout God-fearers needed to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. But how would that happen? We see that the Lord will call his elect to himself in some way. Even when people live in places where the gospel is not preached, the Lord, by the Holy Spirit working and by God's perfect providence, will draw people to himself. The Holy Spirit was at work on Cornelius, but Cornelius had not yet heard the gospel. The Lord calls. Again, people sometimes compelled by God's spirit, sometimes by providence to go to a certain place where they will hear the gospel. In our passage, in this incredible time period in which Christ's kingdom was being inaugurated, Cornelius, a Gentile who is not yet a believer, receives a vision of divine revelation. Chapter 9 showed us concurrent visions with Paul and Ananias. Chapter 10 parallels these with visions to Cornelius and Peter. And the vision from God tells Cornelius that his prayers are being heard by God and that it's God's divine purpose to bring Simon Peter from Joppa to Caesarea. Now, for those of you that like maps and are uh, thinking about these things, Joppa is about 35 miles north of Jerusalem. Caesarea is another 30 miles north of that. In other words, the Lord is seeing to it that the gospel continues to be spread further and further. And that takes us 
to the second vision, this one, to Peter. We pick up at verse 9. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. And then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up, go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? And the men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. What we want to see here is preparation was needed for Cornelius to hear the gospel from Peter. And preparation was also needed for Peter to preach the gospel to Cornelius, the Gentile. Again, there are Jews and there were Gentiles, which is a blanket term for all of the non-Jews. And we see here that old prejudices die hard. Peter understood that faith in Christ was the way of salvation, but losing his Jewish prejudices against Gentiles was a process. His thought process early on still had the sense that a Gentile person needed to become Jewish before being saved. This kind of prejudicial thought exists among all cultures and among all peoples. We expect someone to become more like us if they are really Christians. We have a missionary that we support here at Westminster uh, who ministers among the Chinese and he has told us that a main hindrance of sharing the gospel to the Chinese is their misunderstanding and thinking that they have to become Western, have to become American, so to speak, in order to become Christian. And our missionary has emphasized that they do not have to change their ethnicity, their nationality, their cultural distinctives. They don't have to stop being Chinese in order to be Christian. We find in this country that white Americans tend to expect black Americans to act more white, especially in Presbyterian churches. In fact, our denomination, thankfully, is, taking, is talking about this error right now. Peter and the early Jews must come to grips with the fact that Gentiles don't need to become Jewish. Gentiles are called and saved by God as Gentiles. One of those steps for Peter uh, happens by seeing the Lord moving among Jews and Gentiles in Samaria. He's seen that already. And now Simon Peter is staying at the home of his namesake. 
Simon the Tanner. Now, why are we told that he is a tanner? Because a tanner works with leather, which is the hide of dead animals. Jews who touch dead animals become unclean, and so a Jew would not be a tanner, nor would they associate with tanners. And here is Simon Peter staying at the home, which probably also included the workshop of Simon the Tanner. Talk about your culture shock. When Christians go on short-term mission trip, cultural biases get revealed. Talk to the folks who just returned from the Dominican Republic, which is quite different than Butler, Pennsylvania. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. When was the last time you hung out with Christians in a different cultural setting? The things that we are so quick to fight about in churches often have more to do with our cultural biases and personal agendas than they do with the heart of the gospel and the truth revealed in scripture. And that's for us, for Peter, the change from Old Testament to New Testament was happening in real time. Peter and Paul were not developing different theologies. They were coming to terms with the same one revealed by the same triune God. And a major step for Peter and for the early church is what the Lord reveals here in Peter's vision. At about noon, Peter is up on the roof praying and he falls into a trance. So it's not a dream, but a divine vision that's described in verses 11 and 12. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Now that in and of itself is a strange vision. Downstairs in Simon's workshop is all kinds of dead animal skins and up on the roof is the vision of a sheet filled with all kinds of live animals. And what's really strange is what he hears in verse 13. Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, Peter, perhaps thinking this is a test, especially when he was hungry, gives the right Jewish answer. Surely not, Lord. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. But the Lord gets the last word in verse 15. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Most other translations do not use the word impure, but the word common, that which was common for the Gentiles to eat, was considered uncommon or unclean for Jews according to Old Testament ceremonial law, as we clearly saw in Leviticus chapter 11 earlier in the service. And so this vision, along with the auditory revelation of God's voice, happens not just once, not even twice, but three times. The repetition ensures that Peter got the message And to know it is indeed divine revelation. And I wonder at what point it dawned on Peter. Lord, you mean we can now eat bacon? (laughs) In the TV animated show, The Simpsons, daughter Lisa declares that she is going to become a vegetarian. Her goofy father, Homer, says, are you saying you're never going to eat any animal again? What about bacon? She says, no. Ham. She says, no, pork chops. And Lisa says, dad, those all come from the same animal. To which Homer replies, yeah, Lisa, a wonderful, magical animal. By the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, unclean or common animals that were forbidden to eat include pigs, rabbit, shrimp, crab, and lobster. By Jesus' fulfillment of ceremonial law, the New Testament explicitly reveals here in chapter 10 
that these animals are no longer declared unclean, but all may be eaten. Thank you, Jesus. The full meaning of Acts chapter 10 is not just that because of Christ, Jews and Gentiles may both eat bacon, but that we can do so together. Verse 17 tells us that it was while Peter was perplexed about the full meaning of this vision that the men sent by Cornelius arrive at the door. How's that for perfect providential timing? Two Gentile men sent by the Gentile Cornelius show up at the very moment Peter has had this vision. God saved Gentiles in the Old Testament, but they became Jewish first. Rahab and Ruth are two well-known examples. But others, aliens or foreigners, were circumcised and became Jewish in order to become followers of God. But that is no longer the case. And verse 19 tells us that the Holy Spirit makes it explicit. Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up, go downstairs, and do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. The same God who sent the vision just sent these men. And Peter greets them and doesn't just greet them, but invites them into the house as his guests. How very un-Jewish of him. Jews did not fellowship with Gentiles, even God-fearing Gentiles. They did not sit at table together. They did not share their house together. Peter seems to have gotten the point. And so much for those German liberal scholars that say Peter and Paul have different theologies. For us, we also see the call to share fellowship with fellow believers, even and especially those who have a different culture than we do with whom we share together faith in Christ. And so this brings us to the meeting of two worlds coming together in the persons of Peter and Cornelius, beginning at the second half of verse 23. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered four days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter, He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now, we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel 
telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. And Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Well, Peter has taken along with him some fellow Jews from Joppa who will go to the home of the Gentile Cornelius in Caesarea. And this really is an east meets west, a north meets south, a significant meeting of cultures together, unprecedented, and finding that they have faith in Christ in common. In verse 28, Peter makes the message as clear and as bold as can be done. You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him, but God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. Peter, having shared the divine revelation he received, Cornelius does likewise, sharing with Peter the vision that he had received the day before. And Peter, concluding at the end of verse 33, says, Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Wow! The astounding nature of what is happening is articulated by Peter in verse 34. He says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. God does not show favoritism. God does not show partiality. Simon Kistemacher says it like this, God does not look at a person's external appearance, nationality, wealth, social status, and achievements. God makes clean what was unclean. And he gives us all bacon. And everything's better with bacon. Everything's better with all Christians, regardless of cultural distinctions, in fellowship and ministry together, united in Jesus Christ. Peter goes on to share the good news of Jesus and to affirm that he was a witness of the very things. He himself saw Jesus crucified and resurrected. And so he himself was commanded by Jesus to share the good news that everyone who believes in Jesus Christ receives forgiveness of sins through his name. 
and the Holy Spirit comes down upon the Gentiles and comes down upon Cornelius and those with him. And the Jews are astonished that the gift of the Spirit is poured directly on the Gentiles, even without them becoming Jewish first. And so Peter recognizes that they have received the Holy Spirit. They don't need to become circumcised to become Jewish, but may be baptized and become part of the church of Jesus Christ. Now, a significant background theme to this whole passage is the importance of communication. Communication is when the thoughts of the one speaking become the thoughts of the one listening. We're often told that in listening to another person, uh, in counseling and marriage is good to do, is the parroting technique, restating what you just heard to assure that you have heard it correctly. Peter is speaking to Cornelius and the audience assembled. But previous to that, the Lord was speaking and Peter was listening. And so to hear Peter speak to Cornelius and company becomes the opportunity for us to know that Peter heard rightly from the Lord. The Lord's thoughts spoken to Peter. Peter hears those thoughts and repeats them correctly. Speaks them now to Cornelius and company who then are able to respond back correctly. What the Lord said, Peter came to understand, Peter says it, and now the people understand. And so when we read God's word, we need to hear it with spiritual ears. And the key way to make sure that we have genuinely heard God's word by faith is if we rightly communicate it with our words and actions to others. We are called to prepare to hear God's word, whether it be in our personal devotions, that before we come to the word, we are prepared to hear it. When we gather together for worship, that we have gone through a time of preparation to be ready to hear God's word. Cornelius and company were divinely prepared to hear God's word from Peter. When you come to hear the word, have you come ready to hear the word? The preacher prepares to hear the word and then to speak it. But that's only half of the communication. The ultimate goal is for all of us together with hearts prepared to hear God's word and to do exactly that. And then here's the kicker at the end of the whole thing. Remember that there are Jews and Gentiles and Gentiles are all the non-Jews. That's us. We are the Gentiles. We were the unclean ones. We are bacon, once rejected, but now fully embraced. And everything's better with bacon. Everything's better with all Christians, regardless of cultural distinctions, in fellowship and ministry together. Everything's better when God has declared us clean through the righteousness of Christ, credited to us that the Holy Spirit works directly into us. Everything's better with Christians who have come to prepare to hear God's word and demonstrate hearing by sharing it in word and in deed. Everything's better when the truth has set you free. Amen.